Hello everyone and welcome to this new episode of The London Circle. Today I'll be speaking with someone with extensive experience in international human rights law and someone who has a long list of dealings with the ICC and many international organizations. My guest today is Toby Cadman, who is the head of chambers of Guernica 37. We'll be talking about the past 55 days in Gaza, the war crimes committed, and what kind of teeth do international organizations have to bring war criminals to account. We'll also be touching on other cases such as Bangladesh, Syria, Yemen, and many others. Enjoy. I don't know whether, whether it's right to say elephant in the room, but because it's, it's not that. Everyone's talking about it. The, the term that has been most used probably over the past 50 days is war crimes. And that what Israel has been committing incessantly against Gaza, and we'll come to the West Bank uh, later on, but Gaza specifically, has been described as being war crimes by even those who proclaim themselves to be Zionists, not only Jews, but Zionists, people who have relatives in Israel, people who say we believe in the idea of, of, of Israel. However, we cannot overlook the fact that what the Netanyahu regime, the IDF, the Israeli state is committing is, you know, a series of, of war crimes. Well, I think the when you use the term elephant in the room, uh, and I think it is because if we were looking at any other conflict, if we were looking at any other situation in the world, and we have to understand that the Israel-Palestine is probably the most talked about um, conflict, certainly that I've ever encountered. I mean, I remember writing uh, articles for Al Jazeera several years ago on a number of different topics, and each would have readership of uh, in the low thousands. But whenever it was about Israel and Palestine, it was in the tens of thousands. And so it, it does show. But I think the elephant in the room is because of the situation with Israel. And, and, and I've, I've repeated the, the phrase a number of times in the last couple of weeks is that if we were talking about anywhere else in the world, we would not even be having this conversation, or at least the conversation would be very, very different. And I think that's perhaps why it is the elephant in the room. It, it is it is looked upon very, very differently. And but you're you're quite right when you say that we may not have been or we may not have had such a wide audience calling out war crimes being committed in two thousand six, two thousand eight, two thousand fourteen, different times throughout throughout the um the the, the conflict, the the long standing conflict. But we are seeing that now because of the the scale of the atrocities, because of the the devastation of Gaza and now uh, what we're seeing in West Bank as well, but also because of the, the language which is being used by not only Israeli politicians, but politicians in the West. And I think that has changed and that has caused a great deal of of concern for those that would ordinarily not speak out because it is now making things very very difficult for jews in this country for muslims in this country across europe and it is the language as well as the action which is creating that environment you're a man of law you have um, a, a, a catalog of experiences with the icc with how is it how is it that all of a sudden we're hearing about statements regarding the intentions and the actions being carried out i mean when for instance you have israeli officials stating to the world that they intend to cut off food water medicine essential supplies from a civilian population under siege for 17 years the size of around two and a half million yet then qualify that by saying according to international law. The thing is that uh, in the past, you know, in my experience at least, I, I recall when these acts were hidden, they were denied. You know, these, these, these atrocities, these violations were denied. But now you have politicians, some of whom, in the case of uh, the leader of our opposition, for instance, lawyers, and people who should have legal expertise, actually 
stating things that you know a, a first year law law degree student would understand would be violations of international law yet then go on to somehow qualify that as international law what's well, concerned well, well sorry to interrupt you but what what i would say is when you look at those and, and once one uh, statement in particular was from i believe it was from our immigration minister uh, who had said that all of the action that was being carried out was in accordance with international humanitarian law. I think my my response to that was he really needs to read international humanitarian law to that, understand that's the thing. I mean, the thing that, that, that struck me was, you know, in the world of politics, politicians sway like a pendulum, according to interests, according to their whims, desires, whatever it is, okay? Um, in the world of finance and business, People deal and wheel and, you know, cheat and deceive and the such for whatever gains they, they, they wish to take. But the one solid thing that we have is law. That's one solid thing. That's something that no one can play with. That's something that no one can interfere with, can change or alter or modify according to how they feel, you know, the wind is blowing that particular day. But the fact that these people, some of whom have legal backgrounds, can actually say these things and then add, according to international law, it concerns me greatly that we are now on the, on, on, on the, I don't know, on the threshold of seeing even the law being abused in the way that politics, economics, I don't know, security or the such are being played with or have been played with. I think it boils down to a lack of enforceability. So um, laws are, are only as good as the enforcement mechanism that you have in place. So when, when there is the sense that there is no enforceability of, of those laws, that there is no mechanism to deal with it, there's no political will to, to ensure that uh, what we, you know, the laws that we hold dear are, are when when we see that there that there are no consequences as a result of breaching those principles then then the the whole system becomes meaningless uh, but i think your point where you have politicians with a legal background actually coming out saying because that's what people will listen to that's what the general public will listen to because because we're, we're generally dealing with fairly concept or uh, complex areas of law i mean the basic principles are, are fairly straightforward um, you know you don't kill civilians you don't bomb hospitals you don't bomb schools you don't bomb refugee centers by the same token you don't take hostages civilian hostages and use them as bargaining tools so all of those are fairly basic principles of law but when you see the the response to the 7th of october the consequences that we've seen of that for a leading politician in this country uh, even the leader of the opposition to come out and say that's in accordance with international law well the general public will say well well that's okay then what they're doing must be okay because our leading politicians have said it's in, in accordance with international law but it's not i mean when you look at who i would consider to be leading experts on on these very very principles um, i mean there are there are two in particular two uh, leading international legal scholars mark kirsten who's affiliated to to guernica and kevin john heller who's on twitter you know pretty much constantly talking about these issues these are the people that are actually setting out what are the breaches that we're seeing and what should be the consequences of, of those we had one of the, the the these the statements that has been repeated more than any any other is the right of self-defense and that israel has the right to defend itself yes it does and un, un, under the un charter um, but if we go back to the decision which became known as the the wall case at the international court of justice which obviously israel still has not implemented it was very clearly stated that as an occupying power it doesn't have the right to rely on self-defense in respect of, of those in the areas of which they are occupying so by the very same token 
legal scholars recognize, reputable legal scholars have come out and said that Israel doesn't have the right to rely on self-defense in this way. And even if it did, the the actions that it takes still have to be proportionate. Mm -hmm. And they are not. And so but when we would expect our leading politicians to be able to draw a fine line between what it can do under international law and what it can't, unfortunately, it just gives a, a blanket statement saying it's justified under international law. And we're, we're expected to just accept that. And the, the, you, you see, the thing is, I mean, you speak as clear as day. I mean, it's, it's fine. What, what you're saying makes absolute sense. It's unequivocal. It's um, there's no room for ambiguity. It's it's quite clear. The issue that we have is that because of this lack of enforceability, it is becoming more and more of a conviction. Is uh, that the international law has no teeth? It's there as a statement, uh, probably a statement of intent, probably something to sort of look at and say, well, we haven't entirely lost our humanity because, you know, this is the law. But in actual fact, because it fails to, you know, time and time again, I mean, we can go back to, you know, a few years ago, Syria, for instance, which is an ongoing violation of sorts um, and, and various other cases you know, whether it be the Rohingya, for instance, whether it be the Uyghurs, whether it be... Um, and you say, okay, so what's the use of this? I mean, okay, so it's there, and there are countless students around the world studying this, graduating as experts. But it, ultimately speaking, when crimes, where violations of that particular law happen and occur before, you know, before our very eyes, it's not something that's reported it's something that everyone is seeing. It's something that those same perpetrators are admitting. I mean, they're not saying that they're not attacking a hospital in Gaza. They're saying they're attacking it because they have, you know, a certain motive. But that doesn't alter the law that attacking hospitals and civilian installations is a violation of international law. The danger here, the danger here is that people start losing confidence and trust in international law. Is it not? I think it is, um, and I think it's a it's a very worrying time um, for all of us, um, because I think you also have to look at a conflict like we're seeing in in Gaza in the West Bank, not only in terms of what we're seeing now, but what is going to come next. Yeah. And I think if we don't have the courage to stand up and take action now, that is very clearly going to to affect the way the next conflict is fought. Because it goes, it boils down to the lack of consequences, and I think that the the situation in Palestine is the perfect example. Because we can be critical of the International Criminal Court, but when we look at Yemen, when we look at Syria, when we look at Uyghur, these are situations where the ICC has no or very limited jurisdiction. Because they're not signatories to the Roma Declaration. That's right, and right. and. I mean, with Syria, with Syria, we're still fighting with the International Criminal Court to open an investigation as far as the forced deportation by using the situation that the, the previous prosecutor, Fatou Bensouda, used in the forced deportation of, at that point, um, half a million Rohingya from Myanmar into Bangladesh, because Bangladesh is a state party, whereas Myanmar is not. It's a, it's a crime that occurs on the, the territory of two, two states, and one of them is, is a state party. So the, the International Criminal Court ruled that there is jurisdiction to deal with that. So we then argued the same must apply for Syrians forced into Jordan, because Jordan is a state party. But take that aside, the International Criminal Court has jurisdiction for everything which is happening in Gaza and the West Bank, and by the same token, has jurisdiction for what happened on the 7th of October with, with Hamas fighters. So I think that it's reasonable to be critical when insufficient action is being taken when there is jurisdiction, but I don't think it is uh, as justified to argue when they don't have jurisdiction. But this is a situation where clearly a lot more could be done. You agree that the crisis, the um, international, the international community, international order is facing right now is the uh, crisis of credibility. It is. 
of whether the United Nations works, of whether the Security Council is justified, whether um, the ICC, for instance, is actually doing what it was expected by nations around the world to do. Well, I mean, break that down into in, into two points. So, you know, we've only got to go back in, in history to look at the League of Nations and why the League of Nations effectively uh, collapsed and, and, and the, the United Nations was born because of the very same issues that we're looking at now as far as the United Nations is concerned. And I think that one of the issues that we have with the United Nations is, is that... Uh, lack of enforceability. I mean, it's all well and good making political statements, but unless they're actually backed up with concrete action, uh, it, it effectively, it, it is ineffective. And the Security Council needs to be fundamentally reformed because when you have the veto power of one of the, the, the permanent members and you can see that at least uh, a, a number of those five are actively committing international crimes or actively supporting, aiding and abetting international crimes, and yet they have the power to, to, to veto any resolution. I mean, that has to change. By the same token, the, the criticisms that we make of the International Criminal Court, what I would say is, yes, the, the, there is justification for some of that criticism, but at the same time, it is not solely the International Criminal Court that, that is responsible for its inability to act in the way it should. Look at al-Bashir as an example. He was indicted. We were unable to get him before the International Criminal Court. That's not the fault of the International Criminal Court. That's the fault of as particularly states parties that... Where so it's down to the political will. It is, and state cooperation. So, you know, and to give you an example, having been involved with Bangladesh since 2010, again, another situation that should be at the International Criminal Court, we hope will be one day at the International Criminal Court. There was a there was a a memo that recorded a conversation that Sheikh Hasina had, um, I believe it was uh, around 2014, 2015, when I was much more involved. And, and it was, uh, I believe it was when um, Ban Ki-moon was Secretary General. And, and so, so there had been a number of threats made, you know, if you don't do this, these are the consequences. And the, the conversation was by Sheikh Hasina saying, they can't even stop the conflict in Syria. What the hell are they going to do to us? They have no power. So when, when you have that kind of environment and that dictators and autocrats around the world believe that there are no consequences to what they do, then that is a time when we have to rethink the, the international criminal justice system and the international legal order. Uh, let me take you back to something you said at the, the, the top, and that is something that falls under this mystery to many, including myself, and that is Israeli exceptionalism. That when you're talking about Israel, it's not like you're talking about any other state that commits international crimes. I mean, you've mentioned Bangladesh. We all know about Syria, for instance. But... Uh, but in the case of Israel, this has been ongoing now for decades. And the violations of UN resolutions, including, for instance, you mentioned the wall. I mean, that's just one very, very clear aspect um, which uh, Israel is in violation of every single day, simply because it doesn't, it, it fails to abide by, um, by, by international law on, on that particular thing. Um, why is it, in your in your view, as a legal expert, as someone who knows about these, these cases, even from a political perspective, why is it that Israel has this standing so that not only is it able to get away with committing these, these crimes, but actually enjoys the support, the succor, and the collaboration of you know, very powerful states around the world, including ours? as well as the United States, of course. Why is that in your view? Um, I wish I had an answer to that. Um, I don't have an answer, uh, certainly not uh, an effective answer to that. Um, I think one of, the, one of the reasons has been that there is um, a deep-rooted confusion between criticizing the Israeli government and their policies and anti-Semitism. Um, and I think that 
that the moment you criticize the Israeli state for their policies, and I'm not talking about abolition, I'm just talking about criticizing them for their policies and for their actions in Palestine, um, then immediately they're shot, shot down. That there must be an ulterior motive for that. And it's not always the case. It is sometimes the case. Yes, I accept that. But it's not always the case. If you if you look back to the statement by uh, the current UN Secretary General Gutierrez, when he, he said these tragic events of 7th of October, and then he went on to say it, it, it didn't happen in a vacuum. He was a which is fairly sensible. Well, it's it's yeah, you know, it's it's a statement that a lot of people have said. I mean, there there can be no justification for the acts that were carried out by Hamas on the seventh of October, and and I don't think anyone would support that. But but by the very same token, you have to understand the context in which they have occurred. Again, that's not justifying them. That's providing a context. And then looking at the response to that, it's justified to comment on that. But unfortunately, um, what we what we see frequently, and we've seen it in the last couple of weeks playing out in, in the tabloids here, we've seen it on TV, we've seen it um, even in the House of Commons, is that that kind of that kind of approach is not justified, even carrying a Palestinian flag. Um, our previous uh, Home Secretary, and, and thankfully um, our former yeah, um, no longer. Home Secretary, yeah. wanted to outlaw a demonstration for carrying a Palestinian flag, um, and and as we as we saw the event that that got so much attention, the violence that we saw was not through the through the pro-Palestinian demonstrations; it was through the, the right-wing extremists, the real extremists. So, you know, again. I can't provide any real answer for but, for, but for, I for why. But I wouldn't be wrong in saying that there is a clear um, special status that Israel enjoys um, in terms of what it does, in terms of what it says, in terms of how it violates international law. I mean, had it been any other state that, that would do the same. I mean, we the, the entire world would rightly come down on it like a ton of bricks. Well, if you look at the, um, I mean, two other causes that I'm, I'm, I'm very much behind. I mean, if you look at the, the Syrian pro-revolution demonstrations we had in this country, when you look at the, um, the Iranian opposition and the the, the more recent uh, demonstrations for for women's rights in Iran, you don't see the same level of criticism of of those demonstrations, um, even even when there there is active involvement by the Iranian state and the Syrian state, you you don't see the the same kind of response in 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 relation to those and and the situation um, as I said at the outset is that the situation that we're looking at here is put put into a different category, and if it was occurring anywhere else, we would not see the same the same level of repression of those fundamental rights. Um, but 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 we do we do constantly. Let's imagine for a second that you, Toby Cadman, head of Guernica 37, you had a big say as to what should happen from the legal point of view. Politics, you know, we could, we could speak to political circles. But from a legal perspective, what do you think should be done in regards with what has been happening for the past 53, 54 days? Well, certainly the, the position has to be taken that those who are uh, responsible um, for for what occurred on the 7th of October should be identified, um, charged and prosecuted, uh, where the evidence demonstrates that they're, they're responsible and those who are responsible for what has happened subsequent to that um, in Gaza, where we're looking at upwards of 15,000 deaths now, those that are responsible both from a political and military leadership need to be held accountable and by that i mean arrested charged and prosecuted because unless you by whom by the international criminal court and if the international criminal court is not willing to do that then then we have to ensure as we've seen with the syrian cases that charges are brought against 
individuals, individuals outside, whether it's in Germany, France, United Kingdom, wherever that may be. We have to use the existing laws to do that. But I, ideally, because we, we have to also be quite realistic that no Israeli official is going to travel to this country, be arrested and put on trial for war crimes. We, unfortunately, we know that. Either they're not going to travel or they're going to be traveling under certain immunity certain, or whatever, you know, special mission diplomatic immunity. So, so you know, we, we saw that the previous attempt to, to prosecute a Israeli official uh, resulted in a change of the law so that you now need Attorney General consent uh, to obtain an arrest warrant. Um, so we have to take that into account. Um, so, you know, I think we have to do whatever we can to ensure that that happens. Um, by the same token, we have to ensure that the the prosecutor and the court in The Hague are given sufficient resources to do the job properly and not to expect arrest warrants to be issued next week because it takes time. But we need to see that, that things are actually moving forward. I would like to see the prosecutor and his team given access to Gaza. I would like to see them given access to investigate the crimes that are occurring in the West Bank. Because going back again to Karim Khan, the current prosecutor, his predecessor, she had announced towards the end of her term of office that this was a matter which was under investigation. And I, w I would say finally, I, I, I would like to see the kind of response to the situation, the kind of international support that we saw for Ukraine. Because Ukraine showed us what we can do when we want to do it. And who would have believed a year ago, two years ago, that a British prosecutor at the International Criminal Court would have the courage to issue an arrest warrant for Vladimir Putin? But that's exactly what we saw. So is there any justification for not issuing an arrest warrant against Netanyahu or, or other senior officials? No, there's not. I mean, there's no justification for it. If the evidence is there, and we believe it is, then action has to follow. Tell me about Syria, because, I mean, your chambers has, has been heavily involved in the case of Syria for now, what, 10 years? Where are we with that? Well, I mean, first of all, I'd say that, that, that Guernica was built on Syria. I mean, it was, it was Syria work that brought together um, certainly uh, my partner and I, Al Madena, um, working on different, different areas of the Syrian conflict. So it's always been a very, very important part of what we do. Um, we've obviously um, been active in documenting, working with civil society and, and, and working on a number of different uh, strategies as far as having an accountability mechanism, some sense of accountability. And obviously what we've seen in Germany and France is incredibly important. A number of officials have been uh, convicted. And then we, of course, we have we have the introduction of, of the Caesar law. Um, and so, you know, there, there have been important initiatives. Our, our authorities have, have been very, very slow in, in uh, taking the initiative as far as some of these kids are concerned, but we are, we are confident that we will be seeing more hap happening over the next 12 to 24 months. We are, we are working with them on, on a couple of investigations at the moment, so we're hopeful um, that things will proceed. I mean, do you think that, um, um, you know, for people listening or watching this, should they have hope to, in seeing people being prosecuted for crimes committed, for instance, in Syria? In Yemen, for instance, another place where crimes were committed? Well, I think as far as Syria is concerned, um, certainly uh, one of the most important initiatives that, that, that we've been working on um, that is starting to, to bear fruit. So uh, we've been working with the Dutch government in the um, supporting their legal team in bringing a case to the International Court of Justice against Syria. Uh, alongside Canada for breaches of the torch convention and that's not an individual uh, it's not individual responsibility it's not a criminal case um, it's state responsibility for breaching the torture convention and so just two weeks ago we had 
a decision handed down by the International Court of Justice, which was a decision on provisional measures um, that set out um, a, a number of orders to, to Syria. Of course, the, the, the full hearing will not be heard for probably at least another 12 months, but it was an important step in holding Syria accountable in an international court, particularly when, when we're looking at a time of talks of normalization. Um, which of, obviously to to the Syrian community is is deeply offensive that you know Assad can simply just go back uh, to to the Arab League and, and and start to engage with the the international community and so this is very important we we as I mentioned we also worked with the prosecutor of the international criminal court in in the relation to the crime of forced deportation. And we have a number of other cases against individuals. Uh, we we had been working on, still working on, the case against Asma al-Assad, who a British citizen as well as a Syrian national, um, for for her involvement in in atrocity crimes, particularly uh, in relation to chemical weapons. And so, you know, that that work will continue. Um, it's it's very very difficult to have a, a sense that there will be the level of accountability that the Syrian victim community deserves. But but I think we have to continue to, to push and we have to continue to be hopeful that there will be a sense of, of, of justice for Syrian victims. But I think also the one thing that we have to think about, and, and the, the same goes for, for the situation in Yemen, is that it is largely going to be the future generation of Syrian lawyers who are going to be responsible for holding their predecessors accountable. Um, and in that way, we've worked with a number of Syrian groups in, in developing mechanisms that effectively can be implanted into, into Syria when, when ultimately the Assad regime falls. And it will fall. I'm, I'm confident of that. Um, and and there will we have to hope that there will be a new democratic system that emerges in places like Syria and Yemen. We have to we have what, to believe when that. When you talk about Yemen, who are we who are we prosecuting here? So the the investigations that we've looked at um, are primarily the the Saudi led coalition. Can so, you do that? Well, you can. Of course, you can. Yes. So so there are um, Saudi officials. Emirati officials who, who who are responsible. The coalition is wider than than just um, Saudi Arabia and the UAE. Of course, there are there are other states that can also be held responsible. So there are those states that have provided diplomatic support. There are those that have provided military support, logistical support. I mean, they're they're all part of a what we would say a joint criminal enterprise, um, and so arguably they. They can be prosecuted. So, so you know, we have presented evidence to the Metropolitan Police here. We've we've presented to the prosecutor at the International Criminal Court. But what it what it requires in this particular case is a is a slightly more courageous approach, because it would be ex extending the boundaries of um, of the International Criminal Court's jurisdiction, and we're not. You know, we're not unaware of how difficult a task that is. But again, we have to understand that, that these things do not occur overnight. They take a very, very long time to... Obviously, from the legal standpoint, um, and the thing that you just mentioned regarding the future generation of, uh, of Syrian lawyers, do you find that we have sufficient numbers, capacities, aptitudes, calibers of future lawyers who are willing to get involved in this area of law, which which sounds to me like it it's not the the, the most let's say affluent and the most uh, rich in terms of of legal channels. Yet it's probably in our lifetime the most important line of of law. Uh, do you find that there are sufficient numbers, calibers, capacities, and aptitudes of of of, of next? generation of people who will be interested in what's happening in Bangladesh, what's, who will be interested in, you know, going after the Assad regime as difficult as that may be, or Yemen as difficult as that may be? Yes. Put simply, I think, yes, there are 
um, sufficient numbers, particularly as far as Syria is concerned. I mean, the the, the lawyers that I've met uh, over the last few years working on Syria are some of the best lawyers I've worked with anywhere in the world. And so, and and the level of dedication um, and commitment to to justice is what's important. So. I remember uh, a podcast that we we did uh, a couple of years ago now when we first started um, the Guernica Accountability Podcast, and I did one episode on Syria, and and one of the um, one of those that I interviewed was an extraordinary woman, uh, Wad Al Khatib. Um, actually, I just attended a premiere of her, her, her latest documentary last night, which um, was. I would have to say the second most extraordinary thing I've seen because the first one was her first film, and she she truly is uh, an incredible an incredible person. Um, but what was what was striking when I asked the question at the end of every interview, you know, what does justice, what does accountability mean to you? And she gave me quite an extraordinary answer um, because she she'd never seen it before, and to to many Syrians who had never experienced a system of justice in their own country, in their own lifetime, having that and seeing what it is for those that have been forced into the refugee communities around Europe and have seen what it means in Germany, what it means in France, what it means here, what it means in the Netherlands, having never seen that before, having a legal training, but having no system of independent justice whatsoever, I think it's made them all the more determined to learn and build that for themselves. And so so I think that they are well suited. The the, the young generation of of Syrians. I mean you look at Ibrahim Olabi in, in my chambers, I mean extraordinary individual for what he's done at such a young age. And that's what we need to build on. There is there is always a uh, a danger of what we call the brain drain is that when you have a conflict, Bosnia being the perfect example of that. Um, so uh, I have a very, very close affinity to Bosnia, as you know, and and still spend a lot of time there and have a great deal of friends in this country, um, very, very educated, very, very uh, success, successful professionals, but they leave and that's the problem. Um, one of the situations that we're working on right now um, and have been working with the Attorney General in the Gambia. I mean, the Gambia being the country that brought on, uh, that, that took the initiative to take Myanmar to, to the International Court of Justice. They have their own issues that they have to deal with back home. And one of the difficulties is is getting those Gambians who fled during the dictatorship, who are lawyers, who are judges, to come back and to work within their system to help solve their problems. And people leave essentially why? Do they give up? Is it too arduous? Is it too... What, what, why do they leave? Well, I think you have a stream that leave because of the conflict. Um, you know, you have individuals like like my wife that, that lived through the siege of Sarajevo that, that, that was forced out by her family for her, for her own safety. So you have those. And then they're educated in the West, they have opportunities given to them in the West that they don't necessarily have in their own countries. And so some of them do return, but they return, they see there's there's not been a great deal of uh, development, the, the, the system of, of government hasn't matured, and they don't see that they have the same opportunities that they have um, outside whether it's in the West, wherever it might be. And so so you have that sort of, that, that, that second phase. It could also conceivably be, be quite dangerous also. Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, you and I worked on Iraq, for instance, and uh, one of the things you recall when you were advising human rights activists and, uh, and organizations um, was about collecting information and collecting data. And that was, and, and we, which seems like the most, natural, ordinary, sensible thing to start off with. But that was in itself a huge stumbling block because they said, well, first of all, victims are too afraid of coming forward. And then if they do come forward, risking the lives of the rest of the families, they, you know, you can't get that notified or accredited because the official who will, who will put their 
signature on that particular affidavit or statement will be exposing themselves and potentially coming into harm's way as a result of being part of this. So, so you have the, the, the physical danger that obviously is felt by these people. Absolutely. Um, I mean, just in the nature of the work, I mean, we've had lawyers who have been lawyers that we work with in different jurisdictions that have been arrested, tortured, some some killed, disappeared. Uh, I myself have been subjected to this in in two separate countries, uh, you know, having been detained and deported from Bangladesh and then followed when we met with lawyers in Malaysia, um, receiving death threats, even even last week receiving death threats because of the work that we do on Bangladesh. The same, uh, the one, the one time that I've ever been to to Palestine when I, I, I went to East Jerusalem, I was detained at Tel, Tel Aviv Airport for five six hours and interrogated because I'm a human rights lawyer. Um, so. And I'm. A, it's a badge of honor, by the way. I well, mean. there is that, but um, but I mean, the, the the difference is, is that you know, I was subjected to this treatment, terrifying treatment. You know, being shown photographs of my family, saying that I should have thought about them before I travelled, um, which I've never really spoken much about. But it suddenly occurred to me, I'm a white British barrister. And I get subjected to that treatment. What on earth would I be subjected to, you know, if I was Palestinian and working on documentation of war crimes? You know, you have to, you have to think about that. And so it is it is a very very dangerous task. We know, uh, for example, um, one of the or I would say two of the areas that have been highly problematic is uh, the the investigations into Libya and also uh, investigations into the UAE um, and having attended events in this country where people have spoken out and that there will there will be people monitoring those those events um, and it's you know it, it's terrifying for for young activists who are involved in in this area of work um, you know it's not for the faint-hearted at all um, I love what I do um, um, but I I sit in a level of comfort and luxury that those that come from those conflicts do not have. It's something that um, that really you know boggles the mind. The fact that we can sit here and talk for hours about the the, the catalog of of cases around the world where there are violations, where there are crimes being committed, where there are. Um, often states or state-sponsored, um, and at the cost of horrendous, um, you know, numbers of, of, of human lives, of and, and incredible damage to, to, to livelihoods, um, and you know, the, the, this area of law, which I find um, incredibly instrumental. It, it sort of uh, strikes me how difficult it must be for you to speak to someone, a legal, a, a law student, who's about to choose their path and to select which, I mean, how, how, do, you, how do you talk them into choosing this as their, as their, as their career? You know, I, you know, it's not that you're telling them about how much money they can make or how many cars they can possess or what, how big a house that they can own. It's about the kind of threats that they will face, the kind of, uh, you know, disturbance to family life and domestic life, um, the dangers that become not only on them, but their staff and, you know, their clients. And their families. And it's 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 just I don't know it's ridiculous. How do you how do you do that? How do you convince someone that by the way this is a this is this is a good choice that if you were to make, it's a difficult one to answer. Um, I would say you don't have to convince people to do this kind of work because the, the kind of people who come to talk to you about this kind of work have already made the decision. This is what they want to do, and I think people who enter this enter this for a particular reason. Um, and it and it could be for a whole host of reasons. Um, the, I, I guess the question that I'm asked more is how and why did I get involved with this kind of work? 
Um, and unfortunately, most people are slightly disappointed when I tell them that I sort of fell into it rather than actively chose it. Uh, I think circumstances were such that I was sort of pushed into this. This. At area. what stage was this? At the beginning, right at the beginning. So, so the first placement I had was uh, in Bosnia. Um, so. I, I had done other things before I became a lawyer, um, and so I, I graduated in 2001, and then in 2002, early 2002, I went to um, I went to Bosnia, primarily because you know I'd, I'd been there a couple of times already. I got married in '99. My wife, being from Bosnia, we made the stupid uh, decision not to get her family over for our wedding so we went there later that year which would have been the end of 99 which was during my legal studies and so I was still I was very interested at that time and then I had a chance meeting um, at Cumberland Lodge which is one of the royal lodges here when I was training to be a barrister for an advocacy training weekend and, and happened to meet uh, an extraordinary uh, barrister who's now a judge, uh, Sylvia de Bertadano, who, who now sits, I think, in in Leicester, um, Leicester or Birmingham. And she had been involved with the first case at the International Criminal Court for the former Yugoslavia. Uh, her, husband, her husband was a prosecutor um, in East Timor, and so we just started talking, and it just, to me, sounded fascinating. Um, and so I decided I was just going to apply for a short internship to do uh, an international, uh, just a couple of months, really. Um, and I remember having a discussion with my wife when when she said, if we're going to go to any post-war country, we're going to go to my post-war country. <laughs> and so so I decided to to do a, uh, a three-month uh, secondment. Um, and I was very, very fortunate that um, uh, who... I'd never met her before, but I contacted Cherie Blair um, and asked for some help, and she actually got me some help with uh, with with some funding to actually do the work. Um, and so, what was supposed to be three, maximum six months, <clears throat> ended up being eight and a half, nine years. And because by that point, I then become head of the 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 international support section for war crimes at the Bosnian Prosecutor's Office. When I came back and joined Chambers here had no real intention to continue with war crimes. But um, the first, I think the first uh, uh, group of lawyers that came knocking on my door were from Bangladesh. And then Bangladesh led to Syria, Syria led to, to Yemen, Yemen led to everything else that, that we do now. So, and then Guernica was created. When, when you mention war crimes, you would think, I mean, as a layman myself, uh, in terms of, of law and legal issues, but you know, you'd think that they are very, very few and far between. They're, they're, you know, they happen once every generation or something because they are so horrendous and they are so flagrant. They used to. It's incredible how we look around us and we can, you know, easily, easily. It's, ev it's everywhere. It's, I mean. It's everywhere and we didn't used to have this. Maybe we did, we just didn't know. Um, because you know we're obviously in the age of information, um, and so maybe we know more about what's going on now than we did before. Um, and you know, with 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 social media, um, we we see in real time what's actually happening, whereas maybe we didn't before. I'm not sure if that's that's even true, but I think going back to sort of one of the first points I made, where it's the lack of accountability or a vacuum of accountability and lack of enforceability is why we're, we're seeing it so, so much more often. And I think if you go back to the Trump administration, and if you look at what the Trump administration did- Which, by the way, we, we may still end up having another in a year's time. I think, it's, I think it's almost certain that we will, uh, which is terrifying. It's, uh, it is absolutely terrifying. But if we, if we look at that time and we look at when Trump- effectively allowed a de facto head of state to order the execution of one of his critics um, in a European Turkey embassy. And then we sub subsequently saw him sanctioning the, the prosecutor and judges at the International Criminal Court because they, they had the goal to investigate uh, American atrocities in Afghanistan. That has given a free reign a green card to to any dictator, any autocrat, to 
effectively decimate uh, its opposition. And that is that is the reality, unfortunately. And I think that's why we're seeing so much more now than ever before. I think that's why we're seeing the the, the level of atrocities that we're seeing in Gaza right now is because of the protection of the United States and to some extent the United Kingdom in ensuring that there will be no accountability for, for, for those actions. So I think we will, and unless there is a, a change in the way that we approach justice and accountability, I think we will see an increase, not a decrease, in the level of atrocities that we're seeing now. The United Kingdom government, if you were to offer a grade of how good or otherwise it is in terms of international law, its standing, its support, its endorsement, its promotion of international law. How would you rank it? I don't think it even goes above zero. Really? Really? Why? How? We've had, I, I, I tend not to get involved with political discussions as far as this country is concerned, particularly now, because I, I consider it just to be an embarrassment right now. Um, but when we have a a, a government that has effectively said in Parliament that it that it is it's fine with breaching international law. You know there are there are almost like there are different levels of international law that you can you can breach, and that we were even considering now um, withdrawing from the European Convention on Human Rights in order to to salvage a ridiculous agreement with Rwanda. I don't see. Even before we get to that, I mean, we have we have the 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 unfortunate and ridiculous nature of Brexit. We then have a successive change of leadership um, in the Conservative Party um, that seems to to get lower each time it changes. Um, and now what we're what we're stuck with um, the fact that they are quite happy to 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 breach international law, where whereas we were. You know, one of the the main founding states for for many of these these treaties. I mean, I have to say, I I never expected you to say zero. I thought maybe five out of ten. But um, um, I mean, you've just brought to, to mind when one of our senior officials spoke and said, you know, if ever we are hindered by either European Court of Human Rights or any other, then we need to just basically go over their heads. We need to circumvent any kind of human rights or whatever hindrance it is to, you know, to, to us implementing our policies. That is fairly, fairly horrendous, I have to say. Let's, let's look back at what, what the Prime Minister said immediately following the, the ruling by the Supreme Court, our Supreme Court, on, on the Rwanda decision. Um, whether you agree with that decision or not, the Prime Minister came out and said, and I won't quote him because I don't remember uh, verbatim his words, but he effectively said that, that we will not be bound by a foreign court. I mean, somebody needs to remind him that the Supreme Court it's, is not a foreign it's, court, it's, it's foreign our court. court, and it's applying English law. And the European Convention on Human Rights is a part of English law. And so what he now wants to change, and we're now finally seeing other states criticise him, particularly Biden, um, because it has the risk of derailing the Good Friday Agreement. So, you know, it has significant, significant uh, consequences. I don't know where that's going to end. I mean, I would hope that there would be, I hope that this is going to force an election early next year. I really do. Because there has to be a change. We, we cannot continue like this. It's been fascinating. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.